We live in the era of fake news and hyperpartisanship. Politics can be very frustrating, and nowadays we see people arguing on Facebook over political issues. A lot of people feel like this is the worst that things have been in a long time. But is that true? On this episode, we interview Sharon McMahon, America's government teacher, to find out. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Today, we're very excited to have Sharon McMahon as a guest on our podcast. She's the creator of the viral Instagram account, Sharon Says So, at Sharon Says So, and host of the top-ranked podcast, also Sharon Says So. She is a former Washington, D.C. area government and law teacher, and she is known on social media as America's government teacher where she combats political misinformation with nonpartisan facts. And she's leading a facts revolution that has exploded in popularity on social media. Um, and with all the, the, the misinformation, the fake news out there, there's obviously a, a, a desperate need for this. And, and it's just happened in the last few months. And she's also been featured on Today.com, The Daily Show, Good Morning America. So, Sharon, thanks for being on our show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat. Yeah. So 
You remind me a lot of when I was growing up, there was this uh, thing called the mini page with Betty Debnam. And mm. it was a weekly newspaper that taught civics and a lot of other fascinating things. And so I, I, I love seeing that. I mean, you know, being a, a civics nerd myself, I love, you know, seeing you out there fighting the cause. So if I can ask, how did you become America's government teacher? <laughs> well, you know, it started in September of 2020, and I was just minding my own business, um, <laughs> just doing my own thing. And Facebook turned into a hot mess inside of a train wreck inside of a dumpster fire, right? And I started noticing so, so much misinformation on Facebook. And there was one post in particular that was on one of my friend's profiles, uh, where this person was just, they were talking about the Electoral College, and they just had it 100% wrong. <laughs> it, was, it was like, that is not actually what will happen at all. <laughs> um, they were talking about how when the Electoral College gathers at the at the ballroom at the Hilton in Washington, D.C., and I was like, let me stop you right there. <laughs> there's there's no there's no gathering at any ballroom in Washington D.C. The fact that you led with that means you fundamentally don't understand, right? So I'm sure you understand that feeling where you're like, "That is wrong," <laughs> and yet you want to fix it all too often, right? <laughs> yes, but I also knew that arguing with strangers on the internet basically never works. Right. Like very, very infrequently does somebody say, well, I have now come to a different opinion as a result of you giving me the facts. Right. And thank, thank you for your insights. And That's et right. Cetera. I was really open to changing my mind like that almost never happens. Right. So I knew that just arguing with my friend's friend was not really going to do anything or change his mind. So instead of arguing with my friend's friend. I decided to just make a little explainer video and post it on my social media so that my friend could be like, this might be helpful to you. <laughs> and just just so that people could share it or rewatch it when they needed it instead of me trying to engage in 1000 individual arguments with people. <laughs> so that's really the genesis. I just started making very fact-based, nonpartisan explainer videos. So much of what we see online is very aimed. It's, it's aimed at villainizing one candidate or the other. Right. Um, and so the second that your candidate gets, you know, degraded in a way that you you perceive that you don't enjoy, all of the other information in that video, in that post is suspicious. Right. It's all suspect because you think that they have this ulterior motive. You think that they're just there to they're trying to lie to you to make your person look bad. So my goal was to not villainize one candidate or another and to just share facts about things like how does the electoral college work why do we have it why was it written into the constitution and from there it really mushroomed as i started asking people what are you wondering about what are you curious about how can i help and the rest as they say is history that's what happens yeah and then you went viral <laughs> so one thing I found about misinformation is that 
it's quite threatening. It's it's a scary thing because as someone who loves history, and I'm sure you you know you can understand this, you can relate. You want to believe that what you're reading is true, but then mm-hmm. you hear about fake news, and it kind of threatens the foundation of you know the whole uh, endeavor of learning truth. Uh, when you talk about combating this by recognizing political bias, um, what insights do you have on that? What mm. insights do you have that say, you know, because most people would say, yeah, that's fake news. You know, I don't believe in it, but it, it's still a phenomenon. So what uh, just, you know, from what you've studied, how can you com- combat that, especially when it comes to bias? Mm. So people, people today conflate two things. They, they believe that bias is a synonym for lie, right? They think that those are the same thing, that if something is biased, that it's a lie. And sometimes that might be true, but most of the time, that's not true. Bias is not the same as lie. And so learning to recognize what is bias and what are actually facts, even if you don't approve of the facts. (laughs) Facts don't require your approval for them to be true, right? Like you can disapprove of gravity all day and it doesn't change that gravity is a thing. So one of the things that I like to talk about on my platform is learning how to spot bias and learning how to tease out what are facts in a story. Let's say you're reading a news story and what is the author's or the news outlet's apparent bias. So for example, let's say you're talking about the upcoming um, budget bill that Democrats have been uh, trying to move through, specifically move through the Senate, where the balance of power is very neck and neck, and they really need the votes of all 50 Democrats in order to move their agenda through. And it's a very large bill, has a lot of ambitious uh, social spending in it. And you know, it's three and currently three and a half trillion dollars over over 10 years. So let's say you're reading a news article and it's it's telling you all of those things that currently the bill is three and a half, you know, going to cost three and a half trillion dollars. It's going to spend three and a half trillion dollars over the next 10 years. Here's how they're going to fund it. Here's what's in it. Universal pre-K, blah, 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 blah. Right. Those are the facts that any reputable news agency would report. The bias comes in when they begin to characterize those facts. So, for example, one news organization might characterize it as help is on the way. You know what I mean? Like, look at all of these amazing things that they are trying to do for Americans. Help is on the way. This bill is three and a half trillion dollars over 10 years. So the facts remain the same, that it's three and a half trillion dollars over 10 years. But your interpretation, your characterization of those facts, spin it in a positive light. Whereas another news organization might say, Congress attempts to ram monster bill down the throats of Americans, right? And they might also report that it's three and a half trillion dollars. And so they might report the same accurate set of facts, but they characterize them in such a different way that your impression of that set of facts 
varies widely. Like if you only read one of those news sources, your impression of this bill would be quite different. So I think it's really important for people to understand the difference between bias and a lie. And that you can often spot bias in the adjectives that are used, in the overall tone of a a news piece. How does this make you feel when you watch it? Are you like, this sounds terrible. This is very scary. Or do you feel like, I am excited about that? That is often a a bias of an author or a news organization. And it's important to know the difference. So you're a student of history. I'm sure you've learned about how polarized when we talk about politics, we talk about past elections. Uh, And I like to point out the famous example of the 1800 election, very contentious, Adams Jefferson, Mm. lots of great insults in the press. So many. Yeah, so many. So (laughs) and there was also the era of yellow journalism, late 19th century, early 20th. Is fake news worse, quote unquote, than it was before? Uh, Mm. Is news any more biased than it was in the past? I think that there's a sense now that, uh, you know, there's an assumption now that the media, wherever you stand, is is totally biased. So is it worse? Mm. And it's gotten worse. So how would you say Mm. it compares in the past? Mm. I love that question because people ask me similar things all the time. Like, is this the worst it has ever been? And I bet you hear that too, where people are like, this is the worst America has ever been. That, that it, this assumption that we have somehow just rolled down a mountain and we're at the, you know, the inside of the fires of Mordor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what, where are we? Uh, when I think if people could be transported back to 1799, 1800, they would be like, what in the Sam Hill is going on here? You know what I mean? Like, um, in, in addition to the fact that things are probably not worse in the media than they used to be, um, also social conditions for a huge variety of people were much, much, much worse than they are today. So, this idea, first of all, that we, we don't the, duel. We tweet and we we we, <laughs> that's face, right. we argue on Facebook. We don't duel like before. That's right. <laughs> the vice president doesn't shoot somebody after rowing across the river. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> can you imagine that? This is one of my favorite exercises is to think about something from history happening today. I it, it abuses me greatly. It amuses me greatly to think about, um, you know, Kamala Harris or uh, Mike Pence rowing across a river to, to, to shoot a political rival and then never, never actually being prosecuted for that crime. Right. And, like, the, and well, then fleeing to some part of the country and fleeing, starting it, right. Trying to conspire with another country to say, hey, will you help me overthrow America so I can start? Can I be the leader of my own country? You That's know, a like, fun game. They, like, <laughs> you know, something in the past today, like, what would John yes. Brown's raid look like today? You know, that's a good question. I love it. It abuses me. And of course, I don't think that Mike Pence or Kamala Harris would do that. But it, when you think about the, it's so easy to think about, oh, yeah, that happened a long time ago. But when you picture it in the present, you can really get a, a better sense for how egregious. That is, right? Like, imagine if Kamala Harris rode uh, with her buddies across a river to New Jersey, 
because everything's legal in New Jersey, right? <laughs> and engaged in a duel, shoots a political rival, tries to get a, a, a country that we're at odds with, tries to get Russia, let's say, to collude with her, to overthrow part of the Western United States so she can be the ruler. Like, that is absurd. Yeah, it's crazy. But it <laughs> happened, abs- right? The but equivalent happened. happened, yeah. Yes. It's absurd to think about today. Anyway, so when you when you say, are things worse now? It's like, is the vice president shooting anyone? <laughs> you know what I mean? Are are millions of people enslaved? There's You can think of a, a million reasons why things are better now than they used to be. The, all of that said... To answer your question, (laughs) Um, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that everything is uh, hunky-dory with the media and that it is not contributing to political polarization and that we don't have a disinformation and misinformation problem. We obviously do. And, uh, and, you know, the advent of the Internet has just made it so much easier and quicker for bad information to be spread quickly. But when you look at the newspapers – of the say of the era of 1800 um what you had were partisan newspapers and you picked one based on are you a federalist or an anti-federalist they were they're blatantly partisan blatantly partisan they did not pretend to be reporting independently and so some people would say well that's the same as today no, it, it when you it is was so much more egregious than it is today. It just you had to be a person of a certain means to have access to that information because you had to first of all be able to read, second of all have enough resources to purchase a newspaper. Um, you know, third have have the time to actually read the newspaper. You weren't so engaged in subsistence that you actually had time to sit and read it. So the information was not spread as as rapidly and as virulently as it is today when everybody has access to it. And then to continue belaboring the point, <laughs> I think people think back to, you know, a time period when we had the fairness doctrine. And when they were used to watching Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw, or Peter Jennings on the nightly news, where you got a 30-minute broadcast of everything that was happening in the world, and in order for something to be, in order for something to make it into that 30-minute broadcast, actually, it was probably more like 22 minutes with all the commercials, dang, it had to be newsworthy, right? Like, they were not like... Kim Kardashian got hair extensions today. You know what I mean? Like that was not that was not part of the 30 minute broadcast. So, you know, and this fairness doctrine saying that you needed to present, you know, multiple viewpoints. If you were going to run a hit piece on somebody, you had to give them a heads up, give them a chance to come on your show and refute your claims. I think that's what people are thinking back to as kind of the good old days. And obviously that began to change in the change in the 1980s, but not it did not change recently, right? That, that was changed a long time ago, changed 40 years ago. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, 
we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. We live in a time, and you've alluded to this, where the left and the right see each other as illegitimate. In, mm-hmm. in every way, in their aims and, and their methods, et cetera. And there are a lot of people who want to engage in political issues, but they're, they're feeling pushed to define themselves as either left or right to maintain that legitimacy. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have? And of course, people are, come from different you know, parts of the spectrum on that. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yet some people still want to kind of you know, reach out to everybody. And I think that's something that you've been able to do uniquely. So yeah, what advice do you have? Well, I mean, nothing. This is one thing that I I remind myself is that if we want something to change, we actually have to change it, right? We cannot continue to do the same thing that we're currently doing and expect different results. We cannot continue to say um, the Republicans are ruining the country or the Democrats are trying to make us into a Marxist nation. We can't continue on this line of rhetoric and expect kumbaya and expect unity and expect different results. If you are literally spending your entire waking hours hurling insults at somebody, it shouldn't be a surprise that they're not your best friend, right? Like that, that should come as a surprise to no one. And yet we, many people, certainly not everybody, but many people are operating under this assumption that um, one day the other side is just going to wake up and they're going to, the wool will be pulled from their eyes. They will be like, dang, I can't believe how wrong I was. And thank you for letting me know. We have this, this assumption that that's going to occur and it is not. That's not happening. Nobody's coming to rescue us. No one is coming to fix the problems. It's up to us. It's up to us making daily choices about how we want to engage with other people. Daily choices about being the change that you want to see. Daily choices about how how would I like to be spoken to? Or how does this person feel respect in this moment? Uh, because often we use this lens of like, well, I wouldn't care if she called me ugly. You know what I mean? Like, maybe that's how we feel. But actually, the other person does care. So it's it's not so much about how you prefer to be treated as it is how the other person would prefer to be treated. So I don't know if that answers your question. But basically, the bottom line is nobody is coming to save us. And 
the right is never going to wake up one morning and be like, the left is actually correct. And the same is very true of the left. They're never going to wake up one morning and be like, you know what? I am now a conservative. But if we want something to change, we have to change it. And what we're currently doing is exacerbating our problems instead of seeking that sort of middle path in which solutions can be found. So there isn't a lot of hope for political engagement if you look on social media, as you just alluded to. (laughs) It's very easy to get discouraged. It's easy Mm. for political conversations, whether on social media or in person, to get heated. Now, Mm -hmm. you did something about it and you made a video uh, obviously, you know, not everyone has the time or the means to do that. So what advice do you have for people to, you know, how to engage on those kind of things, especially given the fact that people are going to go on social media and then they see their cousin that they haven't talked to in a while and then they're posting political stuff. And next thing you know, their mind is being, you know, their view of that person is being colored by that. How, how does mm-hmm. one deal with that? Mm. Well, I mean, the first thing is to get off of Facebook. (laughs) Gasp. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I have a Facebook account. I'm not going to pretend I don't. But spend less time around things that make you angry. You know, like very little uh, positive change occurs in your life when you are walking around feeling in this perpetual state of anger. If you're just constantly feeling demoralized, discouraged, angry, upset, you're not going to be like, let me fix the nation with that, with those feelings constantly present. And it doesn't mean that people should never be angry about injustice or never feel angry about things that are occurring that are wrong. But but that can't be your all day long default 24-7 where you're just like, I hate my uncle. You know what I mean? Like that's not, it's not helpful. So do what you have to do to extricate yourself from that situation. If it's getting off of Facebook, if it's hiding their posts, if it's unfriending somebody, if it's st- stop following that news organization, whatever it is, extricate yourself from that perpetual state of of anger. Uh, and everybody has a different tolerance for that, right? Like some people can really tolerate a high degree of it and it doesn't affect them emotionally. They don't bring it home. And some people genuinely cannot. So you have to tailor that based on your own your own tolerance level. But really at the at the heart of it is let's say you want to engage in uh, promoting a cause that you feel really, really passionately about. Let's say it's about educational reform. Instead of spending all day as a keyboard warrior fighting with random bobs on the internet, what if you actually joined an organization that promoted the change you would like to see. A lot of times people think the only type of political change they can engage in is letter writing, like, well, let me write to my senator, or voting. That's what they think. Or and then the third, the third leg of the tripod, arguing on social media. (laughs) And the first two, those are great. Go ahead. I, I support that. But often, the power comes from knowing how to be a squeaky wheel. And in the power comes in numbers. It is much harder for Congress to ignore an organization with a million members than it is to ignore one letter. Do you know what I'm saying? So join an organization that promotes what it is that you're passionate about, because there is more change to be had from an organization that has the organ has um, the means 
They have the people, they have the relationships, they know how the system works. There's a lot more change to be had there than there is just in writing one letter. I'm not, I'm not discouraging people from writing letters. I think that's fantastic. But um, we all, if you've written one, then you probably know that no revolution occurred as the result of one letter, right? <laughs> um, and then I personally have an ethic of I don't, I don't fight with strangers on the internet. That I don't, I have actual things that I want to do. I have actual goals that I want to achieve. And not turns out none of those goals will be achieved by fighting with Bob in my friends, on my friend's Facebook page. So use your time to actually promote what you love, promote what you're passionate about, instead of constantly using social media to rip on people and causes that you are opposed to. So I've always felt that people who love history have a bit of a burden. So there's a great political cartoon I saw, and it, it uses the famous line, those who don't study history are condemned to repeat it. But it adds, those who do study history are doomed to see those who don't study history repeat it. <laughs> and so, yes! Yeah, it's and, so, and so true! Yeah, and I, I don't mean to say that, you know, people who study history uh, know the answers better than people who don't study history. There are lots of people very smart who are too busy to study history. However, I do think there is a kind of a unique burden there. So mm -hmm. two questions for you. What can people who study history do about it? Uh, mm. And part of that means how do they because sometimes that's quite frustrating, right? Because, you're, oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, because you want people to study history. But again, you know, people are busy, you know, that's fine. And some people just aren't interested. But I think at the same time, there is kind of a uh, guy study history, you know, it's a good thing. <laughs> and then second, how do we get people to study more history? How do we get people to care? Mm. Some of it is just uh, understanding human nature. Right. Uh, walking around with a megaphone and being like, study history. Turns out it turns out that doesn't work either. Right. Like if somebody uh, I, wanted... I, I need to get rid of my megaphone. That's literally <laughs> all I do. Just go down the street and up and down the streets of Los Angeles. The time to study history is now. Um, <laughs> that's that's right? all I do. That's all you do. 24 seven. Um, I mean, if somebody walked up and down my street with a megaphone yelling, I love the NFL. Like, watch football. That would have zero effect on me. It would probably I'd, have negative effect. That's negative right. Effect. Yeah. That's right. I would probably be like, and now I hate it more. <laughs> so just telling people to do something often, as you know, makes them want to do the opposite. <laughs> so rather than condemning people for not doing what it is that we think is important for them to do, I find it more useful to inspire them to engage in something, and then they make the choice for themselves. And when somebody is inspired to make change or inspired to do something, it's much more likely to stick than just being shamed or condemned for not knowing it. Like, oh my gosh, you don't know what the war of 1812 was? Oh my God, what what rock have you been under? You know, like that person doesn't feel then like, gosh, I would really like to learn more about that. They feel like embarrassed. And maybe they'll do like a quick search and be like, well, I guess it was... I guess it was about territory, you know, but it's not going to encourage them to actually then become a student of history. So don't I, I, the other thing, too, is that it is OK for people to have areas of interest 
You know what I mean? And it doesn't mean nobody knows everything. And that can't be the goal. We can't condemn somebody for not understanding the history of ancient Japan as well as they understand the Civil War. Like, not everybody has the same interests. And And, and there are a lot of things that people who study history don't know about. There's a lot of things that I don't know about that I've gotten to appreciate more. So, point well taken. It's it's completely fine to have specific areas of history that interest you and have deficits in other areas. That there's nothing wrong with that. Zero people on earth know all the history. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you might have some broad generalities of like time frames and eras and like this was happening in the Mesozoic. You know what I mean? Like you might have some like broad ideas, but the idea that you can learn it all and you should learn it all, we need to alleviate ourselves from that burden. Just like you can't cook all the food and be an expert at all cuisines, it's okay to just be like, you know what? I really love our tacos and I have perfected tacos. I love them. I eat them four times a week. Nobody faults you for that, right? Nobody's like, well, why don't you understand medieval French cooking? So it's give yourself permission to enjoy the portions of history that you enjoy. And for some people, that's women's history. For some people, that's World War II history. For some people, that's, you know, the history of the mentally ill in America. Whatever that is, it's okay. And we should accept that people are, people have their own interests. And actually, we need all of those people because one person can't know it all. We actually need people who are interested in various things so that collectively humanity is bettered from that acquisition, that study of knowledge. So inspiring people more useful than beating them over the head (laughs) and allowing people to have their own interests. And also, I just find it useful to give people um, a very accessible, lighthearted, fun. um, It doesn't mean lighthearted in sense of like all of the topics are fun and funny, but to present information in a way that is accessible so that they don't feel like, well, geez, now I have to read this 1000 page book on John Tyler, bleh. you know what I mean? Like, that's not interesting. But if I tell you one interesting story about him, you might be like, dang, didn't know that. That was That's interesting, huh? And that actually does a lot more to whet your appetite than being like, read this book. You know what I mean? Uh, after I give somebody, like I give a little tidbit of, let's talk about Andrew Johnson. I find him very fascinating. I also find Andrew Jackson very fascinating. Like those are two people that I'm like, that I keep coming back to. And I will share like a little tidbit about, uh, you know, for example, recently on my podcast, I was talking about how the reason Michigan is two peninsulas, you know, that are not connected. The upper peninsula, the lower peninsula has to do with Andrew Jackson, has to do with electoral votes. And I find that little tidbit interesting. Now, does it mean you need to understand the 4,500 year indigenous history of Michigan? Does it mean you need to understand every single aspect of Andrew Jackson to be able to appreciate that? No, but it might inspire you to be like, I have never heard of the Toledo War before. That's interesting. I'm, I would like to learn more about that. So just giving wedding people's appetite in an accessible fashion, as one does on this podcast, <laughs> uh, where you can leave the episode feeling like that was really interesting. I didn't know that before. Um, I think you do a great job of that, too, where you just give people accessible information that they can then take that and do what they will with it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I do want to ask you about that. The thing about the peninsula upper 
peninsula, lower peninsula. Before I do that, do that though, to talk about history more specifically, um, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of progress in history mm. and people sometimes apply current moral standards to figures mm. in the past. And to mm -hmm. some extent it's inevitable and appropriate. Um, and in another sense, historians like to remind us that we have to understand the context in which that person lived. And I've also mm. thought about how progress comes about. Uh, this is a long question, but I, I've thought about how it comes about and that's something I find that uh, I find a little bit lacking in kind of how people talk about history. And there's some people who look at, let's say, abolitionists and say, mm -hmm. oh, everyone should have been an abolitionist because slavery was evil. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, someone like Lincoln didn't support outright abolition of slavery because he felt that it wasn't the most prudent way to address mm -hmm. slavery. He mm -hmm. thought that it would be that it would disrupt and destroy the country and that everyone would be worse off. And then it would be wiser to restrict the growth of slavery so that it would die naturally. But then others kind of fault him and say, oh, that was politically opportunistic. So the issue of progress doesn't seem to be just purely about right or wrong, but also the method to bring about what's right. Mm -hmm. And so what, what are your thoughts on all of that and just mm -hmm. how to evaluate that when you look mm -hmm. at historical figures? That is such a great question. And that is a question that I wrestle with regularly. We talk about it frequently on my platform and on my podcast is how do we reconcile the tremendous good that certain histor historical characters bring to the table with some of their behavior that we find abhorrent? Right? How do we reconcile that Thomas Jefferson wrote this beautiful Declaration of Independence and and simultaneously owned his wife's half-sister? And you know, fathered her children? How do, how do we reconcile those two things? And I don't know that there is one answer that I can give you where I, I can say, I've stumbled on a magic formula of here's how we reconcile these things, because obviously, the context absolutely does matter. Um, obviously, a woman in the 1700s, who decided, you know, like, you know what, I am voting, I do not care what the rest of you say, I'm voting. Uh, that would not have ended well for her. Right. And so, the idea that we can just apply today to the past, that doesn't work. But neither can we pretend that bad things that happened in the past, that that we can just completely whitewash that or erase it because of because that was in the past. Right? Like Hitler, you know, exterminating six million Jews. Guess what? That even that was in the past, and that was still abhorrent. So I do think that it, it, that is one of the questions of our age is how do we reconcile these two things in an era of, of um, you know, we, we now have the entirety of human knowledge at our fingertips, literally the entirety of human knowledge we can hold in our hand. And so we have access to so much more information than we used to. And we really can find out like, unless you were taught it by a teacher or you had the wherewithal to go to the library and look in a card catalog as a child 40 years ago, um, you wouldn't have known about Sally Hemings, right? And now you can just type it in, Sally Hemings. Huh, that is interesting. You know what I mean? You can find out a lot more information in moments. So that is, I I completely get where you're coming from. Like, how do we do that? One one. I'll give you two tips that I that I use. One is I like to take somebody's life on balance, take their life as a whole. What were their positive contributions and what were their negative contributions? 
And I think it is wise to just be honest about, hey, Thomas Jefferson, what, his, his mind is a political philosopher, brilliant mind, clearly. Nobody's arguing that. Nobody is like he was, didn't have a brilliant political philosophy mind. Um, but yet he also did these things as well, because guess what? That is the human experience. Hopefully none of us are, are genocidal maniacs. Hopefully none of us are enslaving people. But all of us, someday historians could do that to all of our lives, right? Like here's all the things that Sharon did that were fantastic. And here's all the time she's stole her sister's Halloween candy. <laughs> you know, like there's, we could do that to many of us. So I like to look at the entire picture and just be honest about what the positives and negatives were. Um, another thing that I have found helpful is gauging whether or not society at the time knew something was wrong and did it anyway. Was it there any kind of a prevailing sense of like, this is wrong, but it's politically expedient for me to engage in it? Did people in colonial America, did people in revolutionary America, did people in the Civil War era America, was the idea that slavery was wrong? Did that exist then? And of course it did. There were many people who were against it right? So it wasn't this novel idea of like, I've never heard that women could dye their hair purple. It wasn't a new idea that it was wrong to enslave people. There were entire portions of the country that, you know, there's lots of writing that talks about it. And obviously people who enslave people like Jefferson, like Washington, they also wrestled with it. They, we have lots of historic evidence that talks about they knew it was wrong. They wrestled with it and didn't, for whatever reason, made a choice to continue with it for a variety of different purposes. So that is another lens that I use is, did people know at the time that it was wrong? And they may not have shared that belief, but the idea that something was, was wrong was not novel, right? It was not a novel idea. Like if you look at John Adams, he obviously spent, you know, he thought slavery was terrible. It wasn't like any of our founding fathers, like none of them ever introduced the idea that slavery was morally abhorrent. So those, I, I don't have a perfect answer, but those are two things that I, two things that I do, two things that I look at when I'm trying to judge um, a historic character. And then in terms of how does progress occur? This is a topic that I, I discuss quite a bit. I feel really uh, passionate about this topic because we long for revolutionary change, right? We long for that declaration of independence. We long for the shot heard around the world. We long for, um, you know, the battle of Yorktown. And we want it to just be like, we won <laughs> and it is better. That's what we long for. And in reality, most societal change requires relentless incrementalism. And that is much less satisfying. <laughs> it's much less satisfying. But if you look at the battle for women's suffrage, which really took 70 plus years in America, over 70 years of relentless incrementalism, 
70 years of fighting state legislatures, 70 years of holding, having conventions, 70 years of parades and demonstrations, 70 years of women writing letters. I mean, should it have taken 70 years? Of course not. I would like, I've liked it to have never been an issue to begin with. But if we're being honest about history, which I think is important to do, for being honest about history, most lasting societal change requires relentless incrementalism. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's the system that we have, right? There's a mm-hmm. system, and I, I think that uh, when the founders created the system, they understood that they wanted a system to adapt to change. And there's a whole reason why they have the amendment process. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I'm preaching to the choir. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, because they understood the importance of stability, but at the same time, uh, they understood that the drawback of that was that people would have to fight really hard to convince a lot mm-hmm. of people to change. But that's a good thing. That's kind of like the draw, the the trade-off because anyways, so. Um, You're right. They purposely built the system to err on the side of stability because they were coming from places of political instability where one leader could come in and just order their dudes to fight these dudes. And now I'm the leader, you know, like that to quote the office, the snip, snap, snip, snap, like the back and forth, back and forth of like, are we Catholic? Are we Protestant? What's happening? Um, they didn't want that. They preferred stability over the ability to enact revolutionary change. And so that is frustrating for a lot of Americans today where we want and I, I get it. I'm not I'm not saying I'm immune from that because that is I think it's human nature. But understanding that the arc of history bends towards justice is I find that incredibly useful and also encouraging. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. I wanted to hear about the whole peninsula in Michigan. <laughs> tell, tell me about that, because I, I don't know about that. I, I I mean, I know I've seen Michigan on a map, and I'm like, oh, look at that other part up there. So, yeah, yeah please, like, please explain. Why is that? Right. <laughs> well, I love learning new things from history, so hopefully this will give you, like, a little brain tingle moment. But so, of course, um, integral to the history of Michigan is the building of the Erie Canal. Right. As soon as Michigan, um, you know, the Erie Canal was built, it opened up Michigan to like tons of new industry. Michigan's connect touching four of the five Great Lakes. And 
They, you know, were tons of immigration, copper deposits, copper mining, like this great lake, that great lake. There's so many options. We can do so much with this territory. And I'll spare you all the great details of how Michigan uh, became part of the United States. But they were wanting to make Michigan a state. And of course, Michigan at one port, at one portion of its lower border borders Ohio. And there was, as a result of a cartography error, um, a little... The, the border was supposed to be a river and the river was not in the place that the cartographer said that it was because they did not have GPS mapping as we do now. Uh, a lot of U.S. there's a quite a few places in the United States that exist as a result of cartography errors. And I find that interesting. But specifically, this little strip of land called the Toledo Strip at the bottom of Michigan uh, you know, attaches to Ohio. Ohio was like, hello, the city is ours. It is on the Great Lakes. It is an important shipping port. This don't why are you trying to take it? And Michigan was like, no, but look at that the river is actually south of where you are claiming it is, and the border is supposed to be at the river. So there was this faux Toledo War, the Michigan-Ohio War, that obviously like didn't actually kill anybody and involved sending militia to either side of this river, and they kind of like yelled at each other and fired shots in the air uh, in an effort to like project this force of you know like this is our border, and they wanted to admit Michigan, but they couldn't admit Michigan until this border dispute was solved. So here comes Andrew Jackson, one of my, I, I often liken my fascination with him as, as kind of like people's fascination with a car accident. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what? <laughs> Not that everything he did was bad, but um, he wanted to get Michigan in, in the union and needed to help felt he needed to help resolve this border dispute between Michigan and Ohio. And he said he, you know, did the mental calculus and decided that he could not afford to lose the electoral votes of Ohio, which was a state. And Michigan was not yet a state. So there was very little political penalty for him to side in favor of Ohio. Whereas if he gave this Toledo strip to Michigan, then he was going to potentially lose the electoral votes of Ohio. So in an effort to sweeten the deal for Michigan, if they would be willing to cede the Toledo strip, and Toledo, of course, is now obviously part of Ohio and not at Michigan, they'd be willing to cede the Toledo strip to Ohio, he would give them the Upper Peninsula, which is not at all connected to the lower peninsula of Michigan, by the way. Not at all. It's connected to Wisconsin. <laughs> and there's a, you know, the Straits of Mackinac divide upper, the upper peninsula and the lower peninsula. And he was like, I will give you this other piece of land. And they were like, and we don't want it. <laughs> that is nothing but ice and trees. We don't want your peninsula. How will we get to that? You know what I mean? And there's still, until they built the Mackinac Bridge, there still is, you know, like, it's still a very big pain to travel from the Upper Peninsula to the Lower Peninsula. Um, ultimately, Congress ended up sweetening the deal with money. And they were like, if we will help pay 
for the costs you incurred from sending your militia men to the border of Ohio, would that help? <laughs> you know, like, we'll pay for you, pay for you the costs you incurred you know of course they can never say like here take our money and just shut up about toledo which is so much which is so much of politics right that's right there's all sorts of bribery all the time so oh right we just say it differently right we just characterize those facts differently so they offered michigan a bunch of money to offset their militia costs and say, okay, here's some money and the Upper Peninsula, and you can become a state. How about now? <laughs> and Michigan was like, fine. <sighs> and they decided that they wanted the money and the statehood more than they wanted Toledo. <laughs> and so that's, I mean, it was really Andrew Jackson's involvement in that, in the Toledo War is why Michigan is two peninsulas. Wow, that's fascinating. And it, it it's funny because uh, I have friends on different sides of the uh, Buckeye versus Wolverine, you know, because <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that's a very intense rivalry. I mean, it, it's so mm-hmm. funny because most Midwesterners, Midwesterners, I know, are very relaxed people, but man, that is a fierce rivalry. So I, <laughs> it goes all the way back to the Toledo Wars. It's it's not yes. just sports. That's right. That's right. And a lot of, especially Western Michiganders, identify more with Wisconsin than they do with the Lower Peninsula, because obviously it's touching Wisconsin. And in order to go from the UP, especially with the Western UP, you have to go all the way around the Great Lakes to get to the to the Lower Peninsula. It's like a 11 billion hour drive. And um, you also can, it's not easy to fly. It's It's just a very unique geographical construct for the United States. And of course, Wisconsin wasn't a state yet. And so that is another reason it's not part of Wisconsin. Hmm. Who knew? Yeah. Did not know that. <laughs> um, so now we, we've talked a lot about the political polarizations, but we're both history nerds at, at the, at, you know, at the, the root of everything. So <laughs> if you don't mind, I want to ask you some rapid fire history questions. <laughs> and so just, uh, you know, if you don't mind. Okay. So okay. Uh, first question, if you could witness any three events in history, which ones would you choose? Mm. Well, one would have to be the signing of the constitution. Cause I do, I do love, I do love my cons, my document. That would be one of them. <laughs> um, let's see. I would love to, witness from a safe distance um the invasion of normandy you know like i don't want to be involved in the fighting <laughs> but if i could just like from my hot air balloon or whatever witness it happening i thought would i would find that super interesting um and then man maybe the moon landing wouldn't that be interesting Ooh, i love that yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, you, you you know, you put on the space suit and <laughs> the astronaut suit. Or, <laughs> From a say the safety right, of, right. you know, if I could be assured my own safety. Yes. Yeah. No, that's very cool. Uh, seeing a civilizational milestone, as I like to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. OK, if you could make your own Mount Rushmore of presidents, uh, you may choose the one that's already up there. But if you could switch out certain presidents, is there anyone mm. you would put on or take off mm. or any of that? Gosh, that is interesting. You know, there's none that I would be like, get off my Mount Rushmore. You know, there I I understand why all of them were included. 
Um, but if I were going to add any, let's see. I mean, if you were going to add one, I feel like you might need to add FDR just because of his <clears throat> impact in public works in the United States. Obviously, you know, he wasn't an outdoorsman in the way Teddy Roosevelt was. <laughs> he didn't, he was not out like sleeping under the sequoias with John Muir <laughs> uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but you can't underestimate the impact that he had on the, pu the, the public infrastructure in the United States. So maybe FDR, but you know, I would think, I'd have to think more about it and like, Make my list and cross off my pros and cons. Sure. Okay. Most underrated president. Hmm. I mean, I do feel like Teddy Roosevelt is was is a little underrated. I mean, he really was. He's popular, but he doesn't. You know, because he was farther in the past, he doesn't. You know, we don't have as many pictures of him like we do you know like Truman and FDR and people who are you know a little bit more recent um so maybe him maybe Teddy Roosevelt but it seems like I also have another favorite I mean people dislike it when I say this but I do have a very soft spot for John Adams I really do I don't know that he was the best president he made a lot of people mad and he was not diplomatic. His wife absolutely would have made a better president than he than he was. Like Abigail would have been a fantastic president. Um, but he his his brilliance and his quirkiness amuse me. And people really do know so much more about Washington, Jefferson, Madison um, than they do about John Adams. Like John Adams was completely left out of Hamilton. Completely. I mean, That's except true. like President John Adams, good luck. Like, that's what we know. <laughs> I, I understand that they can't include everybody, but I felt like he got the short end of the stick. Yeah, no, no DC Memorial. No, uh, you know, yeah, no, it's it's true. It's true. Uh, mm -hmm, he did get mm -hmm. a great HBO series. I absolutely love the HBO series. I've watched it so many times. No, it's, and all, I think it's that amazing. Just, it's amazing. Yeah. Even the soundtrack is amazing. Okay. Most overrated president. Most overrated president. Great question. Um, Maybe Thomas Jefferson. Ooh, interesting. Mm -hmm. And okay. I'm not, I'm not discounting his um, contributions to America as a whole. I'm not discounting that. And I'm not saying that he deserves no place in history. But in terms of like exactly what I mean, yes, the Louisiana Purchase, that was a big deal for America, obviously. Yes. Um, he didn't negotiate it, right? <laughs> like that you you gave, you know, people some you authorized them to spend some money. You, in fact, uh were doubtful of your own constitutional ability to even add to double the size of the United States. Like, where does it say in the Constitution you have the power to do this? So, yes, he did make have some contributions, but we really do hold him up as this, like, um, this beacon of the U.S. presidency. And I don't know. Maybe it's deserved. Um, there's a lot of bad presidents, but I don't think they get the accolades 
that Jefferson does. You know, it's it's funny. Well, I, I agree because the Louisiana Purchase kind of fell in his lap, and I mean, yes, was, Napoleon yeah, wanted the money. Exactly. Yeah, and and anyone I think would have said yes. I, the 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 other problem I have with Jefferson is that uh, the embargo. It was a disaster. Oh, it was and, horrible. Yeah, it was. A di- and, and a lot of people who kind of criticize his opponents for government overreach. And it's like, I mean, what, the embargo, like he banned trade, <laughs> you know? So anyways, I, right. I I recognize him for his accomplishments, but I, yep. I also see him. I think people have this idea of him as this kind of like. Uh, a sage philosopher and Monticello, mm-hmm. but he was really a very, I mean, he was a politician, <laughs> you know, and that's mm-hmm. what he was. The embargo act. That's a great point. How did you for, how did you not foresee the negative consequences that that would have on the people of America? Your, your feelings towards, you know, all of the, you know, British impressment, et cetera, like your feelings about that, color completely colored how this is going to affect your own citizens if, sorry to anyone who loves jefferson on this podcast i, I, <laughs> I we recognize him for his accomplishments yeah, but absolutely but he's a complicated man so you know very much so now now here's here's one who killed jfk conspiracy was it oswald etc mm. etc et mm. i i mean it's funny because there was a time where I felt like one side of the political spectrum thought it was a conspiracy, but now everyone thinks it's a conspiracy. So mm-hmm. a- anyway. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I don't know who killed JFK. Um, if I did know, I would have written a best-selling book by now. <laughs> it's been, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, lots of people have cashed in on that one. Absolutely. Um, including Stephen King. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, there was yes, a miniseries. Yes. Yep. Um, it was a very interesting book, by the way. But um, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that question of who killed JFK. And the thing about it is, um, when people purport to know something, like they have the insider information, you know, like, to me, that burden of proof is very high. <laughs> like, you better come with some good stuff. Uh, if you're going to be like, I know that it was a grassy knoll. You know, I I don't know that we will know. I don't know that we are going to know. I don't know. Maybe that's one of history's mysteries. You know, I I have a very unpopular opinion on that. People look at me like I'm a complete idiot when I say this. But I actually, sorry to our listeners, I'm outing myself. But I actually do think Oswald killed him alone. People think I'm naive. But I I mean, I've been to the site and the grassy Mm -hmm. knoll would be the dumbest place to shoot him from because it's wide open. (laughs) Everyone can see you. If you're going to shoot someone... You're going to do you're going to hide in a building. That's where you shoot people. And, you know, people think Johnson did it, and they, but they have no proof They you know, they just no. say, oh, he was corrupt. And OK, fine. But doesn't mean he killed him. Anyways, anyways, no. that's just my opinion. Who knows? I, if I Johnson was going to kill the president, if Johnson was going to kill JFK, why would he shoot him in a motorcade uh, in, in broad daylight in his home state? You you know what I mean? (laughs) Why wouldn't he conspire with a butler to poison his coffee? 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's a lot more subtle ways to kill your president, the president, if you really hate him that much. Uh, and then he went on to, you know, there. I don't know, I could really get on a high horse about how Johnson didn't kill him, because then he backed down when Bobby Kennedy was considering, a, you know, considering a presidential run, because he felt like that would be disrespectful to the memory of your brother. There's no way I can beat a Kennedy, etc. The idea that he somehow needed to assassinate the president, I don't, I don't see it. So uh, last question. So who was the we talk about misinformation, fake news, which president do you feel was the master of it? Because to some extent, you know, presidents have to, you know, throw out information. They have to spin things. Um, uh -huh. And so who do you think was and I, I don't want to make it too negative. You could say like, oh, they were the master of deception. But in some cases, politically, that's what happened. So who would you say was mm -hmm. the king of manipulating information or, or you know, the spin, basically. Mm, mm. I mean, p potentially FDR, just because he had so much time to do it. <laughs> he was in office for so long and he had so much to hide. He had so much to hide. Um, and you can make the argument that his motives were not malicious. You can make the argument that he, you know, with his, he was truly trying to um, do what he thought was best for the United States by not panicking people, by not, um, by not uh, giving them more worries than they already had in their own lives. You can make that argument. I'm not saying that there are, that argument is, you know, a hundred percent correct, but the fact that he was able to essentially wink, wink with the press for three and a half terms in office, but like, you won't tell anybody about the fact that I can't walk, right? <laughs> you know, um, I find presidents, um, you know, like secret medical maladies, very interesting, like the Grover Cleveland and like, I'm going to get some cancer surgery on this yacht <laughs> and my mustache will hide it. Um, you know, like I, I don't know that that, um, it rises to the same level of I'll pretend I can't walk, I'll pretend I can walk when I really can't for forever and ever. Um, but it's quite remarkable. But, I mean, it's it's that's a crazy story on its own. I mean, the president did have to sneak out of, of the White House. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I find very few people know about that, by the way. And I, I, I love that story where I'm like, yeah, he had mouth cancer and he got the idea that you would get mouth cancer and then you would get surgery on a yacht. Which is in open water that is moving, <laughs> you know, like that doesn't seem wise. <laughs> no, thank God for my anesthesia. <laughs> no, but yeah, that's wild. <laughs> that just seems like, you know, I, I have read about, um, you know, obviously a number of presidents have died in office, died from a variety of illnesses, et cetera, et cetera. Some of them were caused by medical, mal what we would refer to today as medical malpractice. Um, but when you have modern day physicians look back at the medical records of, of Cleveland, for example, um, they have marveled that the surgeons got that surgery on the yacht done in 90 minutes. Because by today's standards, they said that is a three to four hour surgery. So they did it in 90 minutes on a yacht. <laughs> like, that's remarkable. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> with, with, that, with that technology at the time. Right, yeah. right. Slicing no robotics. Them open. <laughs> Slicing them open, yeah. yeah. Yeah, removing a bunch of his teeth. I mean, like, it was a significant, a big chunk of his tongue. It was a significant surgery. 
He was able to get away with it because of the giant mustache. <laughs> That's, I'll never look at that mustache the same way. Maybe <laughs> no. America's most consequential mustache. That's true. <laughs> and of course, Warren Harding, not in office for very long. But when you look back at his presidency and you were like, come again now? You know, like you had like mistresses in the closets of the White House. I mean, just... The number of things that he, he was... who who I think secret. she was like 19, so <laughs> just mm, throwing that mm-hmm. out there. And he was allegedly sterile. Turns out that wasn't true. <laughs> um, the... Just the... When you look... This is a great example of how a president's popularity does not always correlate to a president's success. Right? Harding was tremendously popular. He he won he won way more of the vote than say Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, he was did. beloved. He really was like he was. People were like, well, he's such a presidential looking man, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, he what did Warren Harding actually aim to do? Like, n- give me one thing. His his entire campaign was a return to normalcy. <laughs> like that is your campaign. Normal what? You know what I mean? Normalcy in what? Anyway, I could go on about Warren Hardy. He's also somebody where I'm there. Like the number of things, the fact that it was a prohibition area and he's having all of these like alcohol soaked parties at the White House when it's illegal for everybody else to do it. And all of the, you know, teapot dome scandal, just all of the things that were revealed after he left office. It's just like one explosion after another. Yeah, fascinating man. Yes. So much. Yes. Well, Sharon, thank you for being on our show and yes. sharing your insights and just being a nerd. Uh, that's that's what we <laughs> do best. And uh, yeah, just always love talking history with anybody. And uh, for our listeners, uh, make sure you check out Sharon's uh, just all her her like her podcast. Sharon says so. Uh, make sure you subscribe. And then her Instagram also it's at Sharon says so. Uh, no spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, just make sure you check her out uh, on on the interwebs. <laughs> but yeah. uh, Sharon, invented by Al Gore. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> but Sharon, thank you so much for being on our show. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll we'll hopefully have you on soon again one day. So. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing. You can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.